You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. I'm a cloud-native DevOps course creator, consultant, and manager of this growing community on cloud-native DevOps. This podcast is an edited-down, audio-only version of my YouTube live show, which airs on Thursdays at brett.live. This podcast and all the free stuff I create is made possible by my supporting members. Thank you all so much for your continued patronage. There are well over 100 of you buying me a coffee every month, which makes that just 1% of the people that read, watch, or listen to this content every month. I'm hoping we can double that to 2% this year. And as they say, membership has its privileges. So you can find out how to support this show, my cloud native training, and our DevOps community at brettfisher.com. In this episode, Matt Williams and I have Jake Warner on to discuss the Cycle platform. Jake is the CEO and founder of Cycle.io, and I had him on the show a few years ago when I first heard about Cycle, and I wanted to get an update on their platform offering. Now, this show that you're listening to is generally about Docker and Kubernetes. I try to focus on the merging of DevOps and containers, really, but I'm also interested in any container tooling that can help us deploy and manage container-based applications. Cycle's platform is an alternative container orchestrator as a service. In fact, they go beyond what you would provide normally with a container orchestrator, and they provide OS updates, networking, the container runtime, and the orchestrator all in a single offering as a way to reduce the complexity that we're typically faced with when we're deploying Kubernetes. Now, you know I'm a fan of Docker Swarm due to its simplicity, but it still requires you to manage the OS underneath, to configure networking sometimes, and the feature releases have slowed down in recent years. But I still have a soft spot for those solutions that are removing the grunt work of OS and update management and helping smaller teams get more work done. I think Cycle has the potential to do that for a lot of teams that aren't all in on the Kubernetes way, but still value the container abstraction as the way to deploy software to servers. So please enjoy this talk with Jake Warner of Cycle. Hello. Let's just get to my friends here on the show. We got my co-host, Matt Williams. Hello, Matt. Hello. And then we have Jake Warner, the CEO and founder of Cycle, or you might know it as Cycle.io. I do say Cycle.io, but technically you're Cycle. We should just say Cycle. We can wear both. I flip it every day. <laughs> <laughs> so you had you on the show two years ago. You were a younger company then, but you've yep. been around a, almost a decade, right? Like you're about a couple of years away from having your anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. This year we turn eight. Nice. Nice. So you, we, we've older been than a for startup. a while. Yeah. Yeah. You've been around <laughs> for a while. And for those that, I mean, people saw the ad, they're showing up here because they saw the little thumbnail that says Kubernetes and Swarm alternative. And a lot of the people in my community are learning Kubernetes and Swarm and what is the elevator pitch for a different orchestrator? Like if someone w walked up to you and said, I, wait, I thought I was supposed to, like the inter industry is telling me to do Kubernetes. I thought I was supposed to do Kubernetes. What would be your elevator pitch for them? Yeah, so so first I want to take a step back. Okay. So I used to only refer to Cycle as a container orchestration platform. And this was until Darren Shepard, as we all know from, you know, I was going to say formerly Rancher, but Rancher is technically still uh, around. But there was a point where Darren said, 
Jake, like you, you keep talking about this container orchestration side, but the fact that Cycle also does infrastructure management, like that's almost an equally as important story. Like you should tell both of those. So, so that's the kind of the high level is that Cycle has kind of two components to it. On one side, you have the infrastructure management, which is network management, IP management, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then on the other side, you have the container orchestration. And so the goal where, there was that, hey, if we can build both of these things into the same platform, we can greatly simplify the process for companies, right? Instead of you having to figure out like, okay, you know, how am I going, you know, what operating system am I going to use and how am I going to, you know, keep that operating system up to date and all the other things that kind of go along with that. And and then of course, doing that across multiple cloud providers or, you know, colo regions, et cetera. So, so that was one side. And then the container orchestration side was, hey, if we already know that the operating system, the kernel and all these other things are standardized, great. Can we overlay container orchestration on top of it and make it super easy? So now, Back to your question of when should, you know, yes, you know, Kubernetes is, is peak hype right now, right? A lot yeah. of companies have adopted it, but back in 2015, when, you know, Kubernetes and Docker were really going at it and, you know, they kind of both, I don't want to say got released at the same time, but close enough, right? We'll just go with that. Yeah, sure. That, that when I saw these get released, I was sitting there and I was like, hmm, this environment has the same ingredients for another open stack. Right. Because I mean, mm. I think all three of us on the call remember the time where, you know, 2010, 2011, everyone was saying, hey, if you're not deploying with OpenStack, what are you doing? Right. Right. No one talks about OpenStack anymore. And so, uh, so back in 2015 with Docker and Kubernetes, you know, obviously Docker solved some major issues from a local development standpoint. But from a production standpoint, being across multiple servers, et cetera, that's where you know, there, was, there was kind of something missing at that point. And so, very simply, all the ingredients were there for Kubernetes to eventually become another open stack. And the bet that I made was a decade long bet that Kubernetes would become kind of that default answer. And then after that, just like with most trends in our industry, people are going to move away from that. Hey, I want to be able to customize everything. I want to be able to break everything, et cetera, et cetera, into a position where people are just going to say, okay, I've had my fun. I just want it to work. Like, I don't care about anything else. I just want it to work. And so that was what yeah. I was focused on was just, hey, how do we build a platform that just works and requires very little setup? Yeah. It's sometimes, it's funny how some of these technologies, like if we look back 30 years, because I, that's how long I've been doing this, there are such a, there's, there are such things as too early, right? That happens. And companies sometimes yep. can even fold. And then years later, that thing becomes cool again. And there's sometimes where we have to do a thing in the industry, have to figure out a pattern before we realize that that tool we maybe were all using that we thought we had to use maybe isn't necessary anymore because we've sort of evolved beyond it or something like that. And you might look at, you know, we had all these other things before containers that did part of what containers is. So I could make an analogy there that you know, we had, not that LXC isn't still a thing. A lot of these things, they, they're always a thing after, right? There's, they never really, really go away. I met a guy this week still using OpenStack. They're still fully committed to OpenStack. They deploy OpenStack on-prem for companies. So there are those people, it's, still, it's not completely dead. But it's a great, it's a sort of a great story over the lifetime of tech. Like we talk about these decade-long evolutions. I made, I also made a bet on Docker almost a decade ago when I decided my whole career would be on containers at that point. I never had niched before. And here we are still like almost like 10 years later from Docker's invention, we're still like, they're still innovating on it. They're still adding functionality 
there's still companies being built on the idea of containers. AWS is probably next week going to release another way to deploy containers on AWS. We just had Corey on recently to talk about 20,000 ways you can run containers on AWS. And so I love that anytime I see sort of a cloud platform sort of double down on containers, of course, I'm going to be all in and very interested about that. And I think that's how we originally connected was yeah. realizing that Cycle was betting on containers, but just betting that people didn't want to manage Kubernetes all day and didn't even think that they needed the complexity of Kubernetes all day. I will, last thing I'm going to say here is that you're now starting to see that trend. I mean, your bet isn't wrong because we're starting to see all along what I was kind of hoping was the clouds are removing and abstracting away Kubernetes so that you don't have to deal with it. These are sometimes newer ideas on how to run containers, but they also too are realizing a lot of people maybe did Kubernetes and didn't need it, or a lot of people don't even need to get involved with Kubernetes. And here we are talking about Cycle. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a number of big points there. Like, again, I mean, Google built Kubernetes for managing internal, you know, or sorry, for like managing YouTube and things like that, like big Google properties. There was never any intention of publicly releasing it until Docker started having the success. And then they're like, all right, let's throw Kubernetes out into the ring. And so, so it was just kind of always been amazing that, you know, you have all these startups around the world that are like, hey, like, yes, I have the same requirements as Google. I'm building the next YouTube. And they're not. They're building a mobile app or something, right? And so it just all it just kept coming back down to, and like, again, a lot of this came down to my own frustrations. I've been in infrastructure for, you know, 17 years now. And everyone always has that time where you want to be able to customize and break things and piece back together. But at some point, Everyone just says, you know what? I don't care about that anymore. I just want it to work and I want to get back to my own projects. And so that's what Cycle's entire focus has always been on is just simplifying that process, getting you to 80% as quick as we can. And yeah, that doesn't mean that Cycle is going to be the solution for everyone, right? Like if you are building, you know, some really super highly customized solution, you know, that needs you know, crazy massive scale. Kubernetes might be the right answer for you, right? But for a huge percentage of the market, that's not true, right? And the only right. people are the only people reason people are adopting Kubernetes is because everyone else is talking about it, right? And so, yeah, you had mentioned, you know, that bet looking true, and that is something that over the last seven months has started to really resonate a lot more. And it was really interesting because two years ago we had companies that you know we would be in a conversation with and be like, oh, I love all the value that Cycle provides. I love that I don't have to be in one provider. I love that I don't have to specifically choose AWS or GCP, right? Or if I use both, I have to add extra software to make it happen. I love that I don't need to do that with Cycle. And then you know, as we were wrapping up the call, they'd say, and so so you know, how do I manage the Kubernetes under this? And we're like. Cycle's not built on top of Kubernetes or Docker, like neither. <laughs> and we would lose deals, right? Companies would say, well, yeah, but we're a Kubernetes organization. We spent a lot of time and money adopting Kubernetes. And it'd be like, well, that sucks. You know, it's great to show you a demo, but you know, it doesn't look like yeah. alignment is here. But then you fast forward to today, and those same companies that we were having conversations with two years ago are saying, Hey, you know, so we were going through the stages of the grief process, right? Like back then we were just kind of in that bargaining. Well, sorry, now or over the last couple of years, they're like, we went through the bargaining phase where it's like, hey, what if we add an extra layer to this? What if we adopt another Kubernetes wrapper to try to make this simpler, right? Like just trying to take a complex solution and just keep adding band-aids to it to solve the problem. But now enough of these companies are kind of realizing like, hey, if there's this fundamental complexity deep down in the underlying tech, maybe the right solution here 
is to adopt a different machine. Still run, be able to run the same containers, right? Because Cycle's OCI compliant, right? So you can still run the same containers, but just not having to adopt this huge burden of technical debt in the process. And so that's where it's exciting is, you know, our sales process has changed significantly from before it was, okay, let's stand here and try to convince you to go with Cycle versus Kubernetes. And now it's less of that because many of these companies went and ended up opting to try Kubernetes. But now they're coming back and saying, okay, we tried that. It didn't work for us. Now we're here because like this was our backup option. We tried the other one and it didn't solve our problems. And so it it puts us in a much better position for having these conversations now because it it allows us to really tell our story. And don't don't get me wrong, there's still some companies that, you know, you still have that back and forth with and, you know, Kubernetes versus Cycle, but significantly more are saying, hey, we tried that. It didn't work. We're looking for something new. Yeah. Now, let me back up a real quick and test my memory from a couple of years ago when you were on. I can deploy on my own infrastructure in the cloud. Is that right? Yeah. yeah so Cycle has a couple of kind of like foundational primitives built onto it. A couple of different like primary ideas that the entire platform was based off of. Number one is that all of our customers should own their infrastructure. They should own their data. They should own their networks. That's number one. Number two is that everything should be automatically updatable. You know, because if you're a company that adopts a platform that requires you to manually update it, at some point, someone's going to say, you know, what? I don't care about updating this anymore. And it's going to fall behind, right? It's like Datadog did a report back in, I believe it was 2021, where at the time they were, at the time they were, the report said that the average version of Kubernetes that was deployed at that time for production was 18 months out of date. And you have to imagine probably that kind of fast forward now, it's probably <laughs> yeah. worse, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's the neat thing about Cycles. There's thousands of servers connected to the platform today, and they're all running a build that we pushed out, I think, the third week of April. And so there's no such thing as legacy code in our platform. Um, and that allows us to iterate really quickly. And again, we're eight years into this now, and we've been able to, you know, we've gotten into a position where we can push these up updates on average every two to three weeks and not yield downtime in the process, right? And at first people were saying like, ooh, I'm terrified of you automatically updating my infrastructure. You know, eight years later, we've kind of gotten it down to a science at this point. So it's much less much less of a scare than it used to be. Yeah, I can imagine that I would be nervous too at first, but <laughs> with time and, you know, I was also nervous about my Tesla getting updates all the time and thought that what if I can't drive in the morning because <laughs> it broke in the middle of the night, but that hasn't <laughs> happened. So I'm also no longer caring about it. (laughs) Yeah. So if I remember correctly, didn't you say that you guys distribute your own OS as a part of it? Is if I remember, is that right? Like your own AMI or? Correct. And so one of the ways the cycle makes kind of approaches things a bit differently is that we never installed the operating system to disk. Every time a server turns on, it pulls the operating system from our core. And so it's an 80 megabyte operating system. It's made to do almost nothing. Like all the actual heavy lifting happens after the operating system starts and it pulls down the latest version of the compute layer that needs to run on that server, right? So the operating system, our goal is to make it, how dumb can we make this operating system? So that way, like it has such a limited attack surface, you know, it's very easy to update. Like, I mean, it does almost nothing. All the heavy lifting has been pushed, you know, into the container layer, which allows us to have those automatic updates and things like that. But the reason we did that, and again, this is another one of those things where back in 
you know, when we launched Cycle, you know, when we started bringing customers on in 2018, people were saying like, that's a weird approach. Why would you do that? I don't like that. That's not traditional. And now it's, you know, started really gaining a lot of respect within our, for our product. But the reason we did it that way is again, one of those core principles of the product is that it needs to be able to be fully updated automatically. And if you want to do, you know, automatically update, you know, Docker Swarm or Kubernetes, like to meaningfully update it, there's a lot of questions that an update script or whatever you want to call it would have to ask. Like, what operating system am I on? Is that operating system, you know, what version of that operating system and what dependencies are installed? Like, there's, you know, all these thousand little variables that you need to consider. And maybe part of an update script does not know those, right? Like, how often do people right now, I mean, even installing Docker on a Mac, right? Like if you look at the GitHub threads for issues on you know, installing Docker on a on like an M1 or M2, how many people are like, oh, you know, it's broken right now. Like I can't do builds anymore. Like there's just so many questions around, you know, like when you have to support so many different operating systems and so many different variables, you end up in a situation where things can it's very hard to test every single variable. And so Cycle's whole approach was for us to reliably push updates to all of our customers, we need to know all the variables from day one, right? And so that's where having this operating system with the standardized kernel with, you know, all these things, we can make, we immediately can make the assumption that regardless of what that underlying customer is doing, whether they're you know, doing AI stuff or real estate stuff or building a fintech platform or whatever the building on top of cycle, we at least know that the underlying infrastructure is fully standardized. And that's our moat around our product because to make that decision, you have that's a, that's like a fundamental decision you have to make when you're when you're building it, as opposed to kind of going back in time and saying, well, now I'm gonna add automatic updates. Much harder to do when when there's a lot of discrepancy amongst variables already. Yeah. I'm trying to think back to like historically wasn't that also the benefit of CoreOS? What like it was at the kind of at the core, it was this limited operating system, and then a lot of the stuff happened in containers. I think they got acquired by Red Hat at some point, but wasn't that what they were doing as well? And what was the timeline for? Oh, was CoreOS yeah. already doing that, or? Uh, CoreOS and Cycle were actually being built at the same time. Cycle was probably about a year and a half behind, but Cycle took a slightly mm-hmm. different approach, right? With CoreOS, like, yes, they had the OS layer, but with Cycle, we took a kind of a platform approach, right? So like we manage all of the APIs, we manage all the build systems, we manage you know, all the portals and everything. So that way, these are things that our customers mm-hmm. don't even have to worry about, right? The only thing that our customers run and maintain is the compute layer. Or sorry, not even maintain. Mm. It's just that's what's running on their servers. Everything else, all job scheduling, all DNS, everything else runs on our infrastructure. Right. So that way, it makes it super easy again to get to that eighty percent as fast as you as fast as you can, and it makes it so that our customers don't have to run as much infrastructure, right? And you don't have to worry about running something in HA because, like, in terms of even cycle services, we have. You know, these are the different services that make up Cycle's core. And one of the neat things about Cycle, and I think this is something that we talked about on the last time I was on your show, was the fact that I think that failover is a terrible idea. And we had a whole conversation about yeah. how bad failover can be. And so this is kind of aligned with that same strategy is we have these services that make up Cycle, but each but Cycle has a number of native integrations to AWS, GCP, et cetera. And we run our core across every uh, we run our core across every provider that we support. So that way if AWS were to go down or GCP were to go down or whatever, our core is still up, right? We haven't had a minute of downtime for the platform in 
since the platform went live pretty much. And so that's kind of the difference between CoreOS and Cycle is it's more of a platform approach for, where CoreOS was more of a, hey, we're going to standardize the OS, but you still have to maintain all these other components in the process as well. Right. If I'm remembering that conversation correctly, that was talking about you, you prefer active-active rather than active-passive, right? That's what you're talking about? Yes. Exactly, because you know, us, you know, the, the, the three of us, and probably most people, being in infrastructure for a long time, we all know that, like, hey, you can design the world's best failover process, right? You set it up, but then two years ago from now, who's sitting there testing this failover process over and over right. and over, right? Some companies do it well, but most companies, once it's up and running, the developers moved on to something else, and they, they don't even think about it anymore. So then, when something does inevitably fail three years down the road. The failover process doesn't happen, and it's because no one's put any right. time into you know maintaining it. You paid and all so this money, and, and the thing doesn't even work. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, and so Cycle's entire philosophy around failover is. If something is important enough to you, run it multiple times. And Cycle's entire, like everything is built around that idea, right? So if you go into Cycle and say, hey, this is an application, I run it, I need to run it, it's stateless and I need to make it highly available, great, it will do the things that need to happen you know, to make sure that it's running active active in multiple geographic regions or across multiple providers, you know, the things that are needed for that. That way, if by taking that approach and having active active, if something's fundamentally wrong with your application, you're going to know about it that moment as opposed to later in the middle of the night when someone tells you that something's wrong, right? It's just a much kind of a much more reliable approach. But at the same time, if something does go wrong, like you know, you have an outage that in affecting one provider, you know, for a fact, it's still going to all that traffic is still going to continue to be able to hit your application because it is active active. Right. Well, <laughs> one thing, one question I have about the active active, I looked at the pricing page and I saw that, you know, for businesses that are adopting this, it seems pretty fair pricing, affordable pricing for most businesses that are going to rely on this kind of stuff. But um, and then there was also a free option, but in all the active active kind of configuration, that's only in those kind of business options, those higher priced options. Is that correct? That that is technically correct, right? Our free plan allows allowing people to connect one server. It's kind of one mm -hmm. of those like, hey, like you can play with us from a personal standpoint, right? But if you're yeah. running any sort of application that needs AJ, like at least upgrade yeah. to our light plan. Yeah. Right? We save our average customer three hundred thousand dollars a year, so it's like paying for the light yeah. plan is like it's a, it's a checkbox, right? Yeah. Hey there, podcast listener. At this point in the live show, which this podcast comes from, we do a pretty detailed demo getting into a lot of the features, and it didn't necessarily make sense to put this in an audio-only podcast. So if you're interested more in the tool and how it functions, check out a link in the show note that will take you to the YouTube live that this comes from, and then you can get the full demo there. We're now going to jump back into the conversation after we're done with most of that demo. So right off the bat, uh, the whole story of, hey, Cycle is does not require you to choose just one provider. You can have multiple at the same time. You can mix and match. You can say, hey, I want to use cloud, and I also want to use Colo. You can use virtual machines and bare metal. Cycle does a really good job of kind of taking all that infrastructure and making it almost like a single pool of resources. Granted, you can subdivide that further if you care to, but by default, everything Cycle looks at these as just a single pool of resources. So that's number one. The second thing that I want to draw your attention to is this version number. And this is similar to what we were talking about earlier, where one of the core components of Cycle is that it needs to be able to be automatically updated. It just, again, immediately kind of helps our users know that everything is aligned. In terms of deploying infrastructure, Cycle makes that super easy. Users can go over into infrastructure, 
going to providers. You would just be able to drop your API key into AWS or Vulture or Equinix Metal, Google Cloud. Those are our four native providers. But we also added support for what we call our infrastructure abstraction layer. And our infrastructure abstraction layer allows companies to run cycle anywhere that they would like. So if you have, you know, a rack of servers in your closet, you could connect and manage those with cycle as well and that's where we talk about cycle having those kind of two sides one side being infrastructure management and the other side being contained orchestration is this a vpn network within the cluster it is a global l2 network per environment and then each of these environments is within a cluster so it's not a network at the cluster level but it's a network at the environment level each of those networks is automatically fully encrypted cycle takes care of configuring all ipsec for all those networks so even if your traffic is going from aws to gcp or vice versa all that traffic even though it's on the same l2 network will be fully encrypted that being said some cycle does something also kind of magical, maybe not magical, but really neat is that when it goes through that process of building these networks, it actually runs a number of tests to see if that network is using an out of band connection or a direct connect. And if there's a direct connect available, SIG will default to all traffic to that. So that way you don't even have to you know, tell it you know, all these extra variables about like, hey, if there's a direct connect, go use that. SIG will figure it out on its own. So it makes it super easy just if you need to have you know a high bandwidth pipe between different providers that is you know, technically out of band, you have that avail- that ability. And Cycle just fully configured to that. Is there a latency requirement for the nodes inside of one of these environments? Nope. No, Cycle's built to take any dumb compute and be able to run on top of it. Now, obviously, if your underlying application requires, you know, low latency, that's your, your application. But from a Cycle perspective, there are no requirements. It's, it's, I mean, let me rephrase. You, I mean, reasonable network, right? Like, but we don't require, you know, a super low latency setup. Yeah, I know that like generally I've heard the number for Kubernetes be 10, 100 milliseconds maximum between nodes, which is usually why we want everything in one region. I know with Swarm, ideally it's down at 10 to 20 milliseconds simply because of the way that the algorithm for the control plane works and how it is very gossipy and very there's like there's a lot of low latency traffic necessary to make sure that your managers for your clusters are in sync. But a lot of times, a lot of times people want to go across, you know, there's a common question of how do I go across region? How do I go across cloud provider? How do I go hybrid? And to to my knowledge, like the model for those type of orchestrators is that you make multiple clusters and then you use some higher plane of abstraction in order to connect them with, you know, load balancing and stuff like that. It becomes a harder, we didn't solve this in the orchestrator problem. So I'm curious how your customers use the environments and how they go across region or across cloud. Well, and you hit actually a real a number of really big, you know, kind of points there. So so number one, why these other platforms require low latency? We talked about how there's a the platform approach here, right? Where our customers are only running compute and then we as a company are running the underlying core. So as you're talking about that low latency, that's a problem that we get to solve for you because all of the job scheduling and stuff happens on our infrastructure, right? That way our customers, they're just getting the instructions of what they need to do. All the actual, mm-hmm. everything else happens on our core. So that, so that so what you're saying is the control plane that we all think of it traditionally with Kubernetes and Swarm, you're the control plane. So it's not like it's not like the customer's control plane is on their infrastructure in the cloud they chose. It's wherever your 
control plane's at. <laughs> exactly. And our control plane is scaled across all those providers, but we've gone through the extra stuff and the extra efforts to make everything super reliable and super fast. For the core, right. we've gone through all the extra work to be able to obtain that. Um, but that makes it super easy for our customers because as long as you know Cycle can communicate with their computer infrastructure, they're just pretty much getting just basic instructions. Now, one of the reasons Cycle is called Cycle is that every 10 minutes, every node connected to the platform will download a manifest. Um, and that manifest gives that server every instruction it could ever need to maintain state. That way, if that server could not talk back to Cycle's core for whatever reason, it still knows exactly what its role is, exactly what it needs to do. And you know, suppose you had a container fail or you know a restart issue or you know a health check failed or something like that. That server knows how to handle that without ever talking back to Cycle's core because of that manifest. And so one of the things that people kind of notice about the company very quickly is that we are a hope for the best plan for the worst kind of approach to just about everything. And so that assumes the whole idea of what if our core goes down? If something really, really bad happens, even though our core is spread across AWS, GCP and three other providers, what if it does go down? Granted, you know, if Cycle's core entirely goes down, I think we as a society probably have a bigger problem at this point, given that it was built you know, the way it was. But we just still wanted to be able to say like, hey, maybe maybe there's a, a network issue between where your stuff is running and Cycle. So maybe Cycle's not down, but you're just, your stuff can't talk back to Cycle because who knows something's wrong. That's where that manifest really comes into play and keeps things aligned. What about DNS for container to container resolution? Any, I guess that's one question. And then any notion of namespaces, which I guess those are related, like a DNS namespace. What's that like? Yeah. So actually within this production environment, we have this discovery service. This discovery service, which runs per environment, handles all DNS resolution, which handles all DNS resolution per environment. That is how Cycle takes care of that, is, is all containers within an environment resolve back to the local DNS, sorry, discovery service within that environment. And then public DNS, because we do public DNS as well, um, you just have to point a domain to NS1 through ns4.cycle.io. You can configure your domain. We have you know your traditional record types, but we also have a linked record, which is something that kind of we've built internally. A linked record is your way of saying, hey, you know, this domain, if we do, you know, we can generate a TLS certificate as well. So now, instead of having to sit here and configure, you know, IP addresses and A records and things like that, we're just telling Cycle, hey, anytime someone hits brett.thescentofrain.com, which, by the way, thescentofrain.com is Petrichor. If you've ever heard the term Petrichor, that's our legal company name. And so that's what Petrichor means. Is it's just the scent of rain. But if anyone were to hit brett.thescentofrain.com, it would figure out how Cycle would figure out how to make it hit this container, even if that's load balanced, even if that's running across multiple providers, et cetera. It just makes it super easy. That would be the process in terms of getting public DNS to a container as well. All right. Does Cycle help with migration from one cloud provider to another? What a great question. I love that. So if we go into containers, we'll go into instances and how I mentioned that there was one discovery service, sorry, two running at Vulture and one running at GCP. Let's say, hey, that's not what we want. We want one running over at AWS as well. There's a migrate instance button. Choose that AWS server in that same region. Let's click move instance. There we go. 
So that's how we moved this instance from Vulture over to AWS. And again, this is a stateless instance, but if it was a stateful instance, you'll see that because it's stateful, this option appears where we can say, hey, we want to migrate the contents as well. And it'll begin that migration. But because it was stateful, Cycle says, hey, we're going to keep that old data there. We're going to keep that old instance there for up to three hours, just in case you ever decide that you want to undo what you just did. Then all you have to do is click this revert migration button and Cycle will revert back to how it was before the migration. Um, again, the whole hope for the best plan for the worst. But one of the neat things about this process here is that we're doing a byte by byte copy. So it's not like we built a local file, you know, use more disk space. Like if we had a server that had you know, 20 gigs of storage capacity and 19 were full, we could still do that migrate because it's that byte for byte as opposed to doing like a local dump, compressing it, zipping it, and then moving it. We might not have enough capacity on that server to do that. So right. in that process, we might want to roll back. And I guess that's yep. because maybe we saw a performance decrease on the new platform, perhaps. How would we determine that? Would we be using just metrics that we see inside a cycle or do we also use something like a datadog or other platform so cycles monitoring so right now cycle is, does have some base telemetry stuff telemetry information per instance on the platform and you can configure all the different criteria here you can you, know, you can capture telemetry down to the per second and then you can actually put in the webhook so you can say hey every time we take a telemetry snapshot send it off to something else so if you need to make external decisions but one of the things that i really appreciate as well is this is all a web socket and because we're connected to that socket, if you need to, you know, get really into like really intricate detail usage and stuff about that container, you absolutely can. So we do have some companies that actually connect to this and then pipe that information into Datadog. But we are also rolling out a, a monitoring solution. It'll be in the new portal as one of the primitive options over here. So that way you can have a single dashboard that is kind of a high level look at how everything is running. But and the whole goal of Cycle is to give you to give all of our customers the things that they need to really get started, but still open the doors so that if someone needs to, if someone wants to use Datadog or some other product to connect to things, they absolutely can. Our goal is not to lock anyone out of anything, but just to give you the base tools that you need to get started. All right, we have a bunch of questions. Deploying without ClickOps. Is that an option? I guess like infrastructure is code. Yep. So, so obviously, you know, we do have a full API that most, so the average flow for our customers today is working the UI to kind of get a feel for the platform. One of the common issues that we have with Cycle is that if someone's coming to Cycle from Kubernetes or from Docker Swarm, they will start making assumptions of what they need to do versus what they actually need to do. And so they will end up creating they almost end up creating problems just because they're like, oh, I need to go allocate an IP sub network. It's like, you don't need to do that. And they're like, oh, I need to go create a Docker network or things like that. Like, you don't need to do that either. And an environment automatically does that. So people usually will start within the UI, they'll get comfortable with the platform. Um, and then after they get comfortable with it, then they'll switch over to using our API. And our API is full featured. Our portal is a direct consumer of our own API. But the, the big news is that we are going to be launching a CLI and so we're expecting that to really start streamlining a lot of those processes where someone wants to you know, use that CLI within, you know, GitHub Action and things like that. And then at the same time, we do have pipelines. It is in beta in, in, in this current, current portal, new portal. We've revamped it almost entirely. But pipelines are for people who want to create automated processes within the platform where they can say, hey, every time there's a, a commit to our master branch, automatically, you know, do a b and c and so i guess very simply there's a number of different ways to to automate things it all depends on what that company wants to do 
Yeah, I mean, my follow-up question for that would be, if I have a team of three people that all have right access to my infrastructure, how do I audit that? How do I ensure that things are improved or reverted? In my community, it's all infrastructure as code and GitOps approaches where we pull requests in Git are how we gate things and approve things. And I was just curious if you had anything in the portal that would help us with that. So we do have audit logs and things like that. In terms of, you know, like what is being accepted as infrastructure as code is one of the places where cycle still a little weak. And you know, the, being able to have those pipelines in a position where you're able to approve something before it goes to the next step, right? You know, things like that. That's not implemented at this time. We've started getting requests for it recently. And so it's on the roadmap, but it's not in the platform today. But most companies are taking that approach using like per environment, right? So they'll have a pipeline where per developer, they will have a, a new environment that will spin up on top of that existing infrastructure where they do all the testing, et cetera, et cetera. And then they'll have an admin or you know, whoever you know, is, you know, the responsible party in charge that once it's once they have a build ready to take to production we'll take care of that action because like within cycle you do have role-based controls and things like that but a lot of it comes down to kind of the building blocks that we offer we've noticed that a lot of different companies take those blocks and kind of piece them together in different ways so there's a lot of different things that kind of come into play there one of the things that is helping us get to this GitOps and you know, kind of rainbow deployment approach is that we have building our own load balancer for the last few months because like right now our load balancer is built on top of ha proxy which everything else in cycle is connected very deeply right and so it's hard to have a load balancer that is not that same way and does not allow us to kind of ask it the questions real time that we want to be able to ask it or give it commands without having a stop the world event in the middle right mm-hmm. so we're about 45 days away from launching our own load balancer that will allow us to do rainbow deployments so that way you can say hey you know this is a development environment here's a staging environment here's a production cluster and you can just route traffic based off of you could even potentially do it by ip you could say hey you know if this ip you know is having a request in the load balancer to this url point them to the development cluster so that way if you have a dev team that's hitting from a vpn you could do things like that way or eventually being able to set up canary deployments where you say hey you know this is the new version of our application over the next four hours you know slowly increase the number of people who are hitting it but if you ever get more than a two percent you know 404 rate or 500 rate or whatever you know automatically fail back to the previous version or point the traffic back to the previous version so there's a lot of things that this load balancer will allow us to do that we have not been able to do yet with ha proxy and that's where auto scaling will get a lot easier that's where rainbow deployments will get a lot easier canary deployments and so we're particularly excited for that but that's about four 45 days away. All right. Uh, another question. Are those volumes multi-instance or container attachable, replication, et cetera? I guess maybe dive in a little bit to the volume storage scenarios. Yeah. So we took a very opinionated approach on volumes. We made them very basic, very fundamental. They're direct LVM, so they're very, very fast, but they're all local to the server that they're on. There's no, the platform does not do any replication in terms of the volumes itself, which I've always thought when platforms are like, hey, we're going to automatically replicate your data and stuff. It's kind of weird, right? Like there's a reason that like MongoDB and all these database technologies have the replication built inside of them. They know like MongoDB knows how to replicate that data in a safe way having a platform do it is kind of weird. So Cycle's approach is storage should be fast and it should be reliable, but we as a platform do not make assumptions about how that data should be replicated. We let the underlying applications take care of that. And so, yeah. Um, when you did that migration, that included the data? 
We will move the data, but we will not live replicate it, right? Okay. Like we will move it and we will do backups of it, but we will not say like, hey, we're going to have two copies of this data at the same time. Like that is up to your application. Like there's no reason right. you can't run like two Mongo instances and then have them, you know, share, you know, doing a data replication. But we as a platform, I, again, there's a reason these all these database technologies have replication built into them. Having a platform try to do that is just you're playing with fire. Yeah, 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 sure. I think part of it's too, like you mentioned backups. But, you know, to a lot of people, like they want to know all the features of your backups and how often and how do you recover and all that stuff. Backups are actually really neat with the platform. So if we go into a container and then backups, and so we're saying, hey, MySQL dump, and it's actually going to output this to standard output, right? And we're saying, hey, run this daily and give it 900 seconds to run. So it's actually, the way we implemented backups is really neat. So instead of you backing up to a file, the entire way that cycle those backups is output it to the standard output for this specific command, we will capture that and move it over to your storage provider in 25 megabyte chunks. And then we'll chunk it all together over there into a single file. But that way, similar to what we said before, if you have a server that only has 10 gigabytes worth of you know, of total disk, I mean, that's a very small server, but whatever, we'll go with it. Suppose you have 10 gigabytes of total disk and you have 9.5 gigabytes used. There's no way you're going to back up that 10 gigs to that server to push it somewhere else. So Cycle does this in a really neat way where we in chunks, we'll push it over to that provider. And then the restore is the same thing. We're saying, hey, what, where's the command? And we're going to read from the standard input. So we're just going to pipe that input from your from your backup directly back into the container. So that way we're not using any extra disk space as part of that backup or restore process. So it makes it really cool. And the nice thing is like, if you want to back up a directory, great, tar it and output that tar to a tar, gzip it and output that to your standard output. So you can, so this just gives our users the ability to backup anything like we don't have to give them we don't have to build all these fancy integrations as long as you can put the command in and you can output the standard output great you can back up anything and we can make it so that way again we're doing that byte byte copy as opposed to any extra like really fancy backup process very cool last question here about cluster auto scaling so i presume we're talking about so there's many types of auto scaling. So yeah. node auto scaling or container auto scaling. Yeah, workload auto scaling. So Cycle has all of the pieces of scaling. Scaling on Cycle is super easy. The part that Cycle does not have today is the auto. Now, we do have some companies that have implemented their own auto scaling on top of Cycle. Again, the, the API calls to scale are actually very fundamental and you know, foundational to the platform, but we don't have the auto scaling stuff. Similar to what I was talking about earlier with HA proxy, if you know, getting that kind of real time information to be able to make decisions off of it, we there's ways to do it, but it would have been a hack. Doing it with our own load balancer will give us like real time metrics where the compute server itself can kind of give suggestions back to the platform, as opposed to the platform having to ask everything constantly over and over and over again, like should I auto scale? Everything everything in cycles is push based, and so we don't want to have we didn't want to introduce polling based kind of auto scaling where we're just kind of looking at things nonstop. We want things to tell us when they think we should auto scale, or at least give us a suggestion of hey, we're seeing latency increase, we're seeing you know RAM usage start to you know skyrocket. These are events that we should trigger an event to at least look for an auto scale without having to constantly just sit there and just over and over and over and over kind of do a pool or a sample of all available telemetry at that point in time. But again, we've had companies that have built auto scaling on top of cycle. We just don't have it as a platform feature at this point. So it sounds like there's a number of things in the pipeline. Like you're talking about a CLI later this year, a new dashboard interface later this year, a new load balancer thing you're working on. 
that they're all coming in June? No, a number of these things have been in development you know, kind of simultaneously, right? So yeah. Portal's coming in June, CLI Beta's coming in June, and then Load Balancer we're expecting end of June, early July. So a lot of these have been in development for months now, and it is kind of just correlating <laughs> all to, roughly at the same time. So, so June and July will be a big month for the company. Nobody's yeah. taking vacation in June. <laughs> I mean... When, when things have already been in work for months, right? Like it's like, yeah. I mean, and again, like the neat thing is that because we don't have you know legacy code to maintain and things like that, and since we're able to push out these updates, it allows us to be a lot more reliable with getting mm. new features out. And again, I mean, certain like the load balance would be marked as beta, right? And so our, our customer it would have to be opt in per environment for our mm. customers because again, you don't want load balancing to you don't want to go from like, hey, here's a, you know a fully production tested you know, load balancer to here's a new load balancer and just force that on all of our users. So so there'll be opt in for some of those for a number of those things all right how do people get started is there a i mean obviously we got the, the sign up on the website you said there was a you could do like a single environment for free i think or like a single server or something yeah so to get started so back in january we closed up our sign up process so it used to for years we allowed anyone to create an account but the problem is that the first step in creating an account is you have to put in an api key and we had a lot of people saying like well, I don't know if Cycle is going to solve my problem. I'm not going to put it in the API key and connect it to my infrastructure. So back in January, we closed up our center process and forced everyone into a demo flow. So to get an account, you have to talk with someone on the team. But the nice thing about that is, you know, if we schedule a 20 minute call with someone, and we can just have a conversation be like, hey, what are you looking to get out of this? What, are, what problems are you trying to solve? And then very quickly we can say, hey, you know, we can actually give them kind of a plan of, hey, here's how you should solve this with Cycle, right? And just by closing the sign-up process back in, in January and having conversations with people who are interested in using the platform, I mean, the relationships that we're building with new users to the platform now is just so fundamentally better just because that initial conversation gives both parties, you know, a chance to say, hey, here's how I can help you or here's my problem. So, so yeah, I mean, creating, you know, you can click sign up and then you're just putting in your information. There is a, a demo schedule form. Once that demo schedule form goes out, if someone is like really super adamant, like, hey, like I, I you know, I saw the Brett Fisher podcast. I just went in, I've seen the demo. Let us know and we'll respond and we'll just create your we'll just approve your account immediately. Like if someone's super adamant about not seeing a demo, we'll let them in. But it just gives us an extra opportunity to have that conversation. Right. I'm imagining the shut up and take my money approach. Yeah. A question about self-hosted versus not self-hosted. Isn't the uh, control plane hosted? The, yeah, the control plane is hosted on our infrastructure, but where user containers live, that's on their own infrastructure. Right, right. Okay. So it's that kind of split divide, that hybrid approach. Yeah. Yeah, good distinction. So you started in, in Ohio and you yes. moved to Reno, Nevada. Why were you in Ohio and what made you move to Nevada? So I was born in Ohio and I'd started the company when I was in Ohio, but back at the time, 2015, I was like, okay, do I really want to build a DevOps infrastructure company in Toledo, Ohio, like an area that's known for healthcare and automotive? Probably not the best place. And so we were looking for other places to move the company. And so we, as a team, we flew out to Seattle, Austin, and Reno. And Reno had very similar cost of living as where I lived at in Ohio, but the same, not that way anymore, but it was at the time. And then it's like, okay, like, wow, I can get to Lake Tahoe 30 minutes from my house. There's just so many happier quality of life things here, like being able to sit here and look out the window and there's mountains, right? I could never go back right. to Ohio and you know, just be surrounded by yeah. cornfields, you know, being close to the mountain, being close to Lake Tahoe. It's just, it's, it was just mm -hmm. so much, of a, so much of a 
happier place in terms of quality of life. And then at the same time, one of the ways that we've built our company that's a di- bit different than most in the industry is we have not taken any VC funding. So mm-hmm. where, where most of our competitors have gone, gone out and raised millions and millions of dollars in VC funding, Cycle has built our entire company off of revenue and angels. And so it's nice because we have 33 angels in the company today. 28 of them are either current or former founders. So instead of bringing in VC money, that was like it's like everything is constantly like spend as much as you can, growth at all costs. Maybe you're going to die next year, but that's okay as long as you put as much gas on the fire you can today. At the end of the day, our, our, our users don't care whether we're a super fast growing company or not. They want us to solve their problems and they want us to not fail, right? And yeah. so one of the things that we have as a company that is super kind of foundational to who we are is we have a rule that we maintain a minimum of two years of cash at all times. And so that way, if something bad happens, we have plenty of time to adjust. And as we keep getting in front of bigger and bigger companies, that foundational belief of, hey, we're going to make sure that we don't fail has become a very, very important point to these companies where maybe they've worked, maybe they've adopted a startup in the past and they're like, wow, this is great tech, but then they fail four months later, right? And then they have to go find a new technology or something. So a cycle, our churn is 1.2%, right? Like once a company adopts cycle, they don't leave. And we've put a lot of emphasis into making sure that we, that we're a company for our users as opposed to just chasing the next investment dollar. Right. So, oh, sorry. Well, the full circle there was Reno has a lot of angels. Reno is, in terms of per capita, Reno has one of the highest net worth per capita in the country. Hmm. It's all that Bay Area money with people not wanting to pay income tax on it. (laughs) (laughs) And regarding your comment to about proximity to Tahoe, I mean, I used to go to Tahoe for, at one point, I was going to Tahoe quite a bit. But my favorite mountain there is mostly for the view on top is Mount Rose, and that's closer to Reno. Yep. Yeah, I mean, if I had a window in this corner here, it would be Mount Rose. So it's right, <laughs> right. over there. And it, I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah. Where did you live? At the time I was living in San Francisco, but I had with like seven friends, we rented a, a house in Truckee for, you know, a couple of winters. And so I'd basically spend the whole winter up there because I had a two wheel drive car. So I'd get up to the house and then I'd be stuck for like three weeks. That was one of the other interesting things about moving to the side of the country. Like I remember my first winter here and I was driving, you know, I was driving actually over to San Francisco and I was getting ready to go through Downer Pass and there's all these signs like, hey, you know, pull over and put chains on your car. I'm like, what is this? Like, what, what, I have to put chains on my car? What are these? Like, I'm just used to cornfields. And so I had to go, you know, in, in the middle of a snowstorm, buy chains and you know, figure out how to put yeah. those on my tires just to make it over the mountains. And I didn't even know that was a thing before I moved here. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so mountains are big. Snow's big. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you don't want to start slipping down it. <laughs> no. No. There there we go. That's the quote for the podcast. Mountains are big. Yes. Uh, you heard it here first, people. Well, this is great. I learned a lot today, some refresher for me. And then now I'm gonna have to say it again. We're gonna have to have you back on the show after all this stuff is released. And we get even a you know, whatever whatever we want to call it, cycle three update on the podcast. But I really yeah, appreciate you being here, Jake. Once we live, it's going to change a lot. All right. Well, everybody figured it out. You can go to the website. You can skip the sales because you're on this podcast. You can just reach out to Jake. Yeah, just send him an email. Jake, are you on Twitter? Can they reach out to you I on am. Twitter? Yeah, J- okay. Jake Warner. Okay. Yeah, if, yeah reach out to me any way you want to, and we'll figure out how to get you an accountant. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Engineers here, sometimes they're incompatible with salespeople. So I appreciate the skipping to the head of the line approach. All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.